Charles Spurgeon was born in Kelvin and Essex, England in 1834. He's actually of Dutch ancestry. His father and grandfather were independent pastors outside of the official church of England, the Anglican church. And he was raised uh, with a strict upbringing in the scriptures. He read quite a bit as a child, especially Fox's Book of Martyrs and Pilgrim's Progress were his favorites. He knew in his head that Christ died for our sins, and he was so aware of his shortcomings that he just seemed to push it off, however. And he asked many different preachers the same question, how can I have my sins forgiven? And no one provided an answer that he seemed to understand until January 6, 1850, everything changed. He was 15 years old. And he was headed to church during a snowstorm that Sunday morning, and he ducked into a primitive Methodist uh, chapel to escape the snow. And because of the storm, the congregation was sparse, and there was a lay preacher who was filling in for the pastor who couldn't make it because of the snowstorm there in England. And his text was from Isaiah, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. And Charles tells the story in his own words when he writes, He didn't even pronounce the words rightly. But that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimmer of hope for me in that text. The preacher began thus. This is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now look and don't take a deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. When he had managed to spin out about ten minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. And he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. Just fixing his eyes on me, as if he knew all my heart, he said, Young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did. But I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow, struck right home. He continued, and you will always be miserable. Miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. I saw at once the way of salvation. I had been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard that word look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could almost have looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness rolled away. And in that moment I saw the sun. And I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them, of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith that looks to Him. Oh, that somebody had told me this before. Trust Christ and you shall be saved. Yet it was no doubt all wisely ordered. And now I can say... Ere since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Of course, he became one of the most famous pastors of uh, the modern era. Raised in a Christian family, he knew all the facts, but it wasn't until the age of 15 that he looked, that he saw Christ, and understood what Christ did. The Holy Spirit opened his eyes for salvation brings us to our text this morning, where the author again reminds us to look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Hebrews chapter 10, please. 
Hebrews chapter 10. This is the, we are reaching the high point in this book. And everything they needed to understand about Christ and why He was worth and worthy of their worship and why anything else was worth turning away from is laid out in Hebrews chapter 10, building up to this. In verses 1 through 4, you have it taught very clearly that the Old Testament system was incomplete. We've seen this in chapter 9 several times. In verses uh, 5 through uh, <clears throat> five through 9, really 5 through 10, you have another Old Testament passage brought into play to show how the older pointed to the new, the new and better that was coming. And then in verses 11 through 14, you have the description of the priests. Comparison, again, goes back to a common theme that he's talked about before of the Old Testament priest and Jesus' superior priesthood. And then in 16, uh, 15 through 18, he brings back the new covenant again. It shows the new and living way. Really, as we look at this passage here, I mentioned last week, we need to... The best that we can understand it through the eyes of the Jew, who's been raised in the Old Testament system, who the author now uses Old Testament scriptures to say, see, it was going to end. See, this is better. See, this is not a surprise. This is God's plan all along. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of this. And it begins in chapter 10 and verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year, continually make the comers thereunto perfect. And that's the issue. That's the issue. Over and over we've seen in this book the the theme of drawing near to God, coming to God in full access. And the law, the Old Testament law, Moses' law, could not provide that. He's declared over and over. And because of that, that means the Old Testament was incomplete. Because, because God does desire man to come to Him in fellowship. But the obstacle was sin between us and God's holiness. But He is showing again how Jesus has provided the way. Look at some of the inadequacies of the Old uh, Covenant here. He says the law is a shadow of good things to come. If, if I walk around the corner of that building and I see a shadow that has, uh, has, uh, that has, that has uh, uh, passed uh, on the ground in front of me and I come around the corner of that building and then I see what has caused that shadow, it helps define that shadow. The law was just a shadow that was cast as the Old Testament system looked ahead to the substance of that shadow, Jesus Christ. Notice the other Limitation with the Old Testament system, he says, it can never with those sacrifices. Plural, over and over, sacrifices. What sacrifices? Sacrifices they offered year by year, continually make the comers thereunto perfect. There was a continual process, continual sacrifices. And the system was only intended to be a shadow, not the substance. And the system couldn't cleanse in a one time act. There was removal and cleansing, but I could never get to the heart of the issue. Guilt and sin. And plus it was just a substitute, an animal, that represented something. 
The sacrifice was the substitute. An animal could not actually pay the full penalty of your sin. It represented something. It's like your checks that represent what you have in the bank. You can take that check and rip it up, can't you? It's meaningless until it's cashed. But it's only cashed because of what is already in the bank. And the Lord Jesus Christ is what was in the bank. And the Old Testament system was like the cash that they needed to take upon faith and look forward to the promised one. The sacrifice was a substitute. It could not pay the actual penalty. And on top of that, not only an animal could not actually pay the penalty, another human being could not actually pay the penalty. No human being could die in the place of another, and that would be a sufficient sacrifice. Because there is no human being who has met the measurement of God's holiness and His righteousness. The one who had to come had to be the God-man. One who is eternal, but one who limited himself in humanity. The God-man, Jesus, is the only one who fit that description. You might say, well, then how did those sacrifices uh, work then? Uh, well, they were people were forgiven on the basis of a future Messiah represented in those sacrifices. It wasn't the sacrifice itself that was the basis. Christ was the basis. It was the means to the basis of Jesus. Verse 1 tells us that the issue is this. Those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually could not make the comers thereunto perfect. And the word there is complete. Finished. It's a word that a form of Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. But no sacrifices. The priest would offer that sacrifice in place of the people. Could he ever say, it is finished? Because he would have to do it again. And then next year, at the Day of Atonement, he would do it again. There was no completion. Which tells us that in Christ, there was nothing lacking in Christ. He opens up the way to God. We can draw near to God in a special way. Go with me to chapter 10 and verse 19. Look at the contrast here between the old system that could not make, as the writer says, the comers there too perfect. Chapter 10, 19 says this. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way. A new and living way. Nothing lacking in Christ. We can draw near to Christ, God, in, in a special way. It's through Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. You see this in verse 5 again. He says, Wherefore, when He cometh in the world, He says, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. Jesus Christ in the flesh. We can draw near to God in a special way. The old covenant was brittle. Chapter 10, verse 19, there's substance there. New system. Here's another problem with the Old Testament system. Verse 3. Verse 2 and 3. For then would they not have ceased to be offered, because that the worshippers once purged should have no more conscience of sins. In other words, he's saying... Why do these sacrifices continually need to be offered? 
They, were, they didn't accomplish the job. There wasn't a once and for all purging. And he says in verse 3, But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. He says, in effect, what those sacrifices actually did was because they had to be repeatedly offered, was to remind those people, those Israelites, that sin is a problem. Again, sin is a problem. Again. In other words, they reminded them of sins. And they had more power uh, in uh, reminding them of their sins than there was, it seems, in essence, a one-time sacrifice of purging them from their sins. Uh, certainly, they were grant- the Israelites were for- granted forgiveness on the basis of their obedience to God and those sacrifices, their faith, looking into the, looking into the promise of what that sacrifice represented. But it had to be represented every year. You know, there's some uh, false teachings out there uh, that, that Christ has to be continually sacrificed. Uh, there, are, there, are, there are religious movements that, that have services such as Mass that, taught, that, that teach that the Mass is a continual sacrifice to Christ. That's a blasphemy to the words of Hebrews 10 that says, no, it is done. It is finished. It is once and for all. You see, the law was given to lead us to Christ, to bring us to Christ, to show us our need for Christ. But Jesus puts us in a position where we no longer need to have the sense that we've been turned aside because of our sin and need a new, fresh sacrifice. But Jesus enables us to look instead to His work. Look to Christ in His one-time act for you and I. Look in verse 5. He transitions here to explain again to a, to a Jewish believer who might be wondering... If the old system is really done away with, he quotes from Psalm chapter 40 in verses 6 through 8. And he says in verse 4, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Wherefore, and he's going to back up that statement with this, Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, when Jesus comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. So he quotes from Psalm 40 and verses 6 to 8. And here's the picture you need to think in your mind. Jesus Christ, before He is incarnated into this world, born of a virgin, stands before His Father and says these words on the precipice of eternity. Jesus says, Sacrifice and offering you do not desire, thou wouldest not, but a body you have prepared for Me. And burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have no pleasure. Then... Because of this, because of the inadequacies of that system, Jesus, in verse 7, says, Then said I, Lo, I come. I come. 
What a great Christmas text this is. Lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do thy will, O God. I will come and I will do what the old system could not do. These are the words of Jesus to his father. We don't know when. The words of Jesus that David records explaining that the old system was inadequate. Sure, God instituted the sacrificial system, didn't He? He revealed it to Moses and gave it on those tablets. But you know what? There was nothing wrong with the system. What was wrong was with people's hearts. And Jesus Himself would quote Isaiah and say, uh, uh, their lips say these things, but their hearts are far from Me, right? He said, I desire not sacrifice, but... In fact, we last year uh, preached through the book of Micah, and one of our favorite passages in chapter 6, he makes this very clear, and I'd like you to turn there, uh, Micah chapter 6. Micah was a, uh, a contemporary of Isaiah, and a lot of things that were said in Isaiah are said in Micah in a kind of shorter way. In Micah chapter 6, in the book of Micah, it's all about this very issue. That the people's heart, their worship was directed uh, toward themselves. They would give lip service. They would, they would even follow some of the things that God said, but they're not from their hearts. And in Micah chapter 6 and verse 6, there's a question that's a rhetorical question. He asks, and he says this. Micah 6, 6. Wherewith shall I come before the Lord? Remember this whole theme of Hebrews is about coming into God's presence. Wherefore shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? How shall I approach God in worship? He says. Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves of the year old? Is that what will please the Lord? He says, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? What if I had ten thousands and thousands and thousands of sacrifices presented on my behalf? Will that do it? Will that get me over the edge? He says, shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? What if I gave my own child for my sin? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. Would that be enough? And the answer is in verse 8. He hath showed you what is good. Here's what he really wants. In essence, he's saying, I want your heart. He has shown the old man what is good, and what does the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. You can do all these different religious rituals, and be far away from God. And in fact, you can even be doing good religious rituals that are actually building a wall between you and God as you're putting your trust in those things instead of God. And that was the issue. And so in Hebrews chapter 10 again, when he says, uh, sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and offerings, offerings for sin, now what it's not, he's not, he's not saying that, though, God, you, you, you revealed this and you laid that out to the Israelites, but now you don't want it anymore. What he's saying is, those have been done of the wrong motives, wrong heart. But here's the answer. Here's the answer. Christ incarnate. Christ in the flesh. 
the God-man come down from heaven in the flesh to live the attitude, to live in obedience, to live with the right motives of loving God with all his heart, all his soul, all his mind, love man perfectly, teach God's truth, the one who would come and give his body as a sacrifice, as the payment of God for man's sin. So he says, the sacrifices have no value in and of themselves. Their value is in what they pointed to. The sacrifices showed people's hearts as they distorted the purposes of what the sacrifices before. But God would provide an offering. It was through the blood of Jesus Christ, the body of Jesus Christ, the incarnation Christ, the incarnate Christ, offered. And verse 10 says, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Once for all. In verse 9 he says, then said he, lo, I come to do thy will, O God. The will of God. What was the will of God for Jesus? They would give his life a ransom for many. That he would come to seek and to save those who were lost. That he must suffer and he must die and be raised again as the Messiah. On behalf of the sins of the people. I come to do that will, Jesus says. I am coming to do it. And he did. Now why does the writer bring this psalm into, into um, the memory of the, of the readers? Because they needed to understand that the Old Testament pointed to the New. That this is not a new concept. This is God's plan all along. Exhibit A here, again, in the Psalms. If God said sacrifices and burnt offerings, I don't desire, and He would provide another way instead through Jesus, through a body, Lord Jesus come into the flesh, and He would provide that way through Jesus coming to do the will of the Lord to die for the sins of His people... Remember, the, the, the angel told Joseph, He shall be called Jesus, for He shall what? Save His people from their sins. And the writer of Hebrews is reminding them of all these things to say, Jesus is the one this all points to. Verse 9 and 10 are linked. He quotes again, uh, Psalm 40 and verse 8 Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God And he adds this comment to it He says The writer says this He taketh away the first That he may establish the second He takes away the first old covenant That he, that he may establish the new Which is ratified in the blood of Jesus And look in verse 10 Jesus coming to do the will of God and dying for our sins in verse 10. The author says, by this which will, by that will, by the will of God, by the will that Jesus would complete. The obedience, Philippians 2 says, unto death, even the death of the cross. By that will, we are set apart. We are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That's what that word sanctified means. In its simplest terms, it means set apart. God in Jesus, God loved us in Jesus, so that through the work of Jesus, we have been set apart. And the truth of the gospel is that people who come to Christ are possessed by God. 
They are possessed by God. They are the possessions of God. They are dedicated to the Lord. They can approach God. They are called in other places saints, which means set apart ones. And it is only through Jesus' one-time sacrifice that He gives us a full assurance, a definitive, done. It's finished. Through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, once for all. That's what this passage means, but what does it mean for you right now in August 2016? Jesus' work provided the cleansing that you and I could not manufacture. Jesus' work, one-time work on the cross provides the endless uh, uh, activity and flurry of things that we try to do to earn God's favor. It's done. Jesus' work on the cross cleanses the most vile sinner. You see, we, we, we looked in Isaiah 6 this morning saying, Holy, holy, holy. The thrice holy God, the God who is... The, the, the holiest is what... The Isaiah was saying, God, you are the holiest. And there's that big gap of sin. And sin is all of us turning our own way. Uh, wanting our own way instead of God's way. Subverting God's will and putting ours in place of it. Building our own kingdoms instead of laboring in the Lord's. And because we do know we. And if we continue in our sin, it means that we do not know God. And the Lord will say in one day, one day, I never knew you. Depart from me. And on our best day before God, we are wicked, vile sinners. And we are wicked, vile sinners who, on that day of judgment, will see an eternity apart from God in an everlasting torment called hell. Where there is no relief from no purgatory, no prayers from other people down on earth who could release us from that. We have rejected God and He has turned His love away from us. But this one-time act of Jesus on our behalf means He paid what you and I could not pay for our sin debt. We couldn't even get the sin debt needle moving one click. And Jesus didn't just pay that sin debt so now that we're cleansed and back to zero again and balanced out. Over here on this other side, He heaps upon us this perfect, eternal righteousness, the one who comes to do the will of God perfectly. And He says, God the Father, because of this individual's faith in my finished work, look upon him through my finished work and look and see me in his place. Jesus pays the eternal debt of our sin on the cross. That's what verse 10 is about. So God can look at me because of my unmitigated trust in Jesus. God can look at me and say, I see my son. I see his perfect righteousness. I see one who is now sanctified completely. Who is set apart completely. And yeah, there's work to be done in his life. But I choose to see him in the fullness of my son's perfect, complete righteousness. 
that never change if I'm in Christ. That will never change for the believer. In fact, that's why in Hebrews 10 and verse 19, he says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he has consecrated, set apart for us, through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, his body, and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Do you know that it's on the basis of Jesus' one-time finished work that you and I as believers who still do sin can claim that and go back to that? Not having to re-offer Jesus, not having a continual sacrifice for us, but looking back to that one-and-done activity and say, Jesus... Forgive me on the basis of that. And folks, if you have not come into God's presence through Jesus, and you are not a saved, regenerated, made alive, born-again Christian, set apart and possessed by God, He's the only way you can be. Friends, there is no sin that is beyond the depths and power of Jesus' powerful cleansing blood. When you were a kid, you probably didn't enjoy baths and showers. You probably enjoyed being dirty. But the older you get, you tend to like to be clean again. At least most of us, right? And there's nothing better than being outside in a hot day, sweaty, dirty, and coming out of that shower and feeling clean, fresh. Sin sticks to us. We can't scrub it off. In fact, we end up smearing it like ink all over us as we try to take care of it our own way. Jesus... Work is the detergent. It is the clean cleanliness. It is the soap. It is what takes care of our sin. It makes us acceptable before God. Some of us are always trying to live up to a certain standard, and it feels like we climb and climb the ladder, and have good days, and then we slip to the bottom again. And you need to come to the point in your life where you realize Jesus already climbed that ladder, and He did it for you. And you need to climb on Jesus' back. He takes you to the top. In the 14th century, Robert Bruce of Scotland was leading his men in a battle to gain independence from England. Near the end of the conflict, the English wanted to capture Robert Bruce to keep him from the Scottish crown. So they put their bloodhounds on his trail. And when the bloodhounds got close, Bruce could hear them bang in the distance. And you can imagine your heart starting to race as the people who wanted your head off were getting closer and closer. And his attendants said, we're done for. They're on your trail. They're going to reveal your hiding place. And Bruce said, it's all right. And he headed for a stream that flowed through the forest. And he plunged in and he waded upstream a short distance. And when he came out on the other bank, he was in the depths of the forest farther on. And with minutes, those hounds got to the water's edge, tracing their steps, and and, and they came to the bank. They could go no further. 
The English soldiers tried to urge them on, but the trail was broken because the stream had taken that scent away. And a short time later, the crown of Scotland rested on the head of Robert Bruce. Friends, Jesus cleanses us. And believers, the memories of your sins, prodded and massaged by Satan, can be like those baying dogs that you hear in your ears. But if they have been forgiven and cleansed, there is a stream that flows, red with the blood of God's own Son. By grace through faith, you are safe. There's no sin hound that can touch you. The trail is broken with the precious blood of Christ. Because the purpose of the cross, someone said, is to repair the irreparable. And I don't know where each heart is here this morning. I'm sure in a room represented this time, there may be some who are self-deceived and may find themselves, if they do not turn to Christ in that day, they may find themselves hearing His words saying, Depart from me, I never knew you. And they may respond, But I did this. But I did this. Or I accomplished this. And His response will be even more from, Depart from me, I never knew you. But to those who respond, I know your Son. And your Son knows me. And I am possessed by you. I am owned by you. Jesus Christ's blood has purchased me. He's put His Spirit within me. He's given me a new heart. I'm born again. The answer will be, enter into the joy of my eternal kingdom. I'm not sure where you are this morning, but if you've not turned to Christ, I want to tell you on the basis of the Word of God this morning, there is no other way. There is only one offering that's sufficient, and it's Jesus. You need to look upon Him and live. Which means you need to trust in His finished work on the cross and receive His perfect righteousness this morning. And friends, those of you who profess to be believers this morning, you may be going through very difficult times. You may have, have, a, have a sin that is plaguing you. I want to tell you, there is power in the blood. Jesus restores, He repairs, He rebuilds broken lives. Jesus makes all things new. It might be your marriage. It might be the relationship with a, with a, with a lost son or daughter. Uh, it might be a work situation. It might be a health scare you are facing right now. And through the blood of Jesus, there is one permanent reality that you anchor all of your life in. Because it is sure and steadfast. And it never changes. And it's the hope of our soul. And it's the rock of Jesus' work. Nothing else changes. Nothing changes in Jesus. Life changes Your body changes. Relationships change. Jesus never fails. And Jesus never failed. He finished the work. And that gives me hope for every day. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.
wonder if this morning there's an individual here who realizes that they have not come to Christ. They have not boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. They do not have the new and living way. They do not have a high priest, Jesus, representing them this morning. The Holy Spirit is make it very obvious that you're lost in your sins. And today, He would say, I want to look to Jesus and live. If that's you, would you speak to me after the morning service? The Holy Spirit's worked in your heart and you want hope in Jesus. Let's pray.